This is a prayer for the natural creation, and hopefully it will become clear as to why I'm praying this prayer as we begin today's study. We magnify Thee, O Lord. We bless the excellency of Thy name and the great works of Thy hands, the manifold vestures of earth and sky and sea, the courses of the stars and light, the songs of birds, the hues of flowers, the frame and attributes of everything that hath breath, and upholding all thy wisdom, marvelous, worthy to be praised, but most that by thy sure promise we now do only taste the glory that shall be revealed, when thou, O God, wilt take the power and reign, world without end. Amen. Okay, we are in Romans chapter 1 today, and we're going to start at verse 18 and read through verse 23. So if you have your Bibles, please be so kind as to open it to Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, where Paul writes these words, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. For the past uh, several weeks, really for over a month now before Christmas, we have been studying this introduction to Paul's epistle to the Romans. We've talked about all kinds of preliminary matters. We talked about the author of the epistle. We talked about Paul, his background, his heart for the gospel. We talked about that word, the gospel itself. What does that word mean? Because it appears so frequently here in this first chapter and in these first verses. Paul talks about the gospel, not being ashamed of the gospel, being a set apart for the gospel and so forth. And we said that that word gospel means good news, glad tidings. The Greek word is evangelion, from which we get the term evangelical or evangelist. And we also talked about the recipients of this letter. We talked about the people to whom Paul was writing. We said that the epistle to the Romans was written to a church that Paul had not established. This is unique among Paul's letters. Most of the time he had a relationship, a personal relationship with the community that he was addressing. That is not the case here. But instead Paul was writing to the church in Rome because of its strategic significance. It was located in the most important, at least as far as the secular world was concerned, the most important city in the ancient world. And part of Paul's strategy was to get the gospel out to as many people as quickly as possible. And the best way to do that was to concentrate on the major metropolitan areas. And of course, Rome would have been so significant in that kind of a missionary endeavor. So we talked about all of those preliminary things. But now when we get to verse 18, and we talked about this just briefly the last time we met, when we get to verse 18, Paul is really getting into the heart of the letter, what this is all about. Everything up to this point has been prologue. But now Paul is really going to get into the argument itself, what this really is all 
about, the purpose of the letter. And the purpose of the letter, of course, has to do with the need for the gospel. The gospel is good news. Paul makes that point very clear. But someone might ask the question, why do I need this? Why do I need this gospel? Paul has given his whole life over to this because he recognizes it as essential. Not just essential for him personally, but essential for the whole world. In fact, he says that. Look at verse 16. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's Martin Luther's great text. The righteous shall live by faith. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a gospel that is needful, and it's needful by everyone. For Jews and Gentiles alike, they all need the gospel because in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed that comes by faith. Now, we've talked about that term righteousness before. When Paul talks about righteousness, what he really means is not morality or uprightness of character, although that is part of it. But what Paul is really talking about here is a right relationship with God. Paul says the gospel is needful because that is the one thing we lack. We lack a right relationship with God. In fact, Paul goes on to say that it's actually worse than that. It's not just that we don't have a right relationship with God. We have a hostile relationship with God. That's why he talks here about the wrath of God. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's the problem. Paul says that's why we desperately need the gospel, because we do not have a right relationship with God. In fact, he says it's worse than that. We have a hostile relationship with God. We are at war in conflict with the Almighty. And as a consequence of that, the wrath of God is being poured out upon us. Now, we talked a little bit about that term, wrath. We said that wrath, to many people today living in this so-called enlightened age, regard the wrath of God as an antiquated notion. We think of the wrath of God, we think of the God of the Old Testament, but we certainly don't think of the God of the New Testament. Oftentimes people will say, well, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that was the God of judgment. But the God of the New Testament, well, that is the God of love, as if the Old and New Testaments present us with two very different gods. Incidentally, that was condemned as a heresy of the church. And I would point out to you that there are actually more references in the New Testament to God's judgment than there is to His love. Did you know that? There's more reference in the New Testament. We're not talking about the Old, but in the New Testament. (laughs) Hence the Baptist church. Well, I don't know if it's just the Baptists. It may be that those churches that don't preach on the wrath of God are not actually preaching a biblical gospel. I mean, let's be honest. Romans is a book in the New Testament, and Paul is talking about the wrath of God. Now, I think one of the reasons, and I pointed this out last week, one of the reasons why we neglect this subject of the wrath of God 
is because we understand the wrath of God as being something similar to human anger. Capricious anger. And that's not exactly what the Bible means by the wrath of God. There are two words in Greek that when they're translated into English are both translated as our word anger or wrath. One of those words is the word thumos. You'll see it up there on the screen. It's sometimes translated to be in the heat of violence. And I think that's oftentimes what we think of when we think of anger or the wrath of God. We think of God in the heat of violence. I guess a better way to put it for us today would be to describe it as a panting rage. Do you ever know somebody who's in a panting rage? They just, they can't control themselves. They they fly off. They just explode. And I think that's the picture that we often have. Now that word is used in the New Testament, but interestingly enough, it is only used once and it is used at the very end of the book of Revelation. The word that is normally translated as wrath and used many times in the New Testament, such as this incident here in Romans, is the Greek word orge. And it's a little different. It is a word that means a strong and settled opposition. So it's, it's not something that is just a loss of control, which is, I think, what we imagine, that panting rage. Instead, it is a strong, settled opposition to something. And it is frequently described in the New Testament as something that builds up. It's not something that just happens automatically. It's something that has been building for some time and then suddenly breaks out. You know, volcanoes don't just erupt. The situation builds for some time. And those who are experts in these things can oftentimes predict when a volcano is going to erupt. Because there are telltale signs. It's been happening for some time. Well, that's the idea of wrath. It is God's settled, strong opposition to sin. And it does eventually break out but it only breaks out after it has been building for some time and there has been warning to that effect. Now let me just give you an historical example, something that I'm very familiar with, in part because of where I grew up. In 1889, one of the worst floods, the worst flood, in American history took place. At a little village, a little city, at the confluence of two rivers, the Little Connemaw River and the Stony Creek. It's in western Pennsylvania. It's in the Connemaw Valley. The town is called Johnstown. Probably most of you are familiar or at least have heard of the Johnstown flood. Now that city is built on a natural floodplain where these two rivers come together. And there have been many floods over the centuries, the most recent one being in 1977. Over 200 people were killed in 1977 when those two rivers flooded and a number of dams in the area broke. Torrential rainstorm. There was another flood in 1936 on St. Patrick's Day, but the most famous of these floods took place in 1889. And that's the one that everybody knows about. If you're fans of David McCullough's book, the very first book that David McCullough, the historian, wrote was on the Johnstown flood because he grew up in western Pennsylvania from Pittsburgh and he was familiar with it. Now here's the background to the Johnstown flood and hopefully it will help to illustrate what 
what Paul is talking about when he talks about the wrath of God. There was in that area, up in the mountains, above the city of Johnstown, a large reservoir that had been built in the 1850s by the Pennsylvania Railroad. It was to supply the railroad with the needed water that it was necessary in order to get locomotives up over the mountains and so forth. When the Pennsylvania Railroad no longer needed that reservoir, um, it fell into disrepair. They drained the reservoir and it just sat up there. A portion of an old dam was left, but there was nothing there. In the 1880s, about 30 years later, what happened was a group of wealthy Pittsburghers decided to establish a resort there. It was a beautiful area, the Laurel Highlands, up there in the mountains, a wonderful place to escape from the soot and the dirt of Pittsburgh in the summertime. Now, when I say wealthy Pittsburghers, I'm talking about very wealthy people. I'm talking about Henry Clay Frick, Henry Mel um, uh, well, Andrew Carnegie was there, Andrew Mellon, lots of these very powerful people. And, of course, Andrew Carnegie at the time was the wealthiest man in the world. Now, what they did is they established a fishing club up there. It's called the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. And they rebuilt this earthen dam, and they filled this reservoir, expanded it, and filled this reservoir with water, and they would have these expensive fish brought in on these refrigerated carts. And they would stock this lake. And they built what they called cottages, very much like the Newport cottages, a little smaller than that, but not really cottages of all these magnificent homes, three and 4,000 square foot homes that they would just go and stay in for maybe a few days out of the year. But they would fish and they would hunt in this area, and the club became this sort of escape for these people. But they discovered that they had a problem. All these expensive fish, there was a spillway because this was an earthen dam. And you needed a spillway in the event that you had torrential rainstorms, which sometimes occur in the area, and the dam would be in danger of collapsing because of the rising water. And so they had this spillway. But what they discovered was that all of these expensive fish were going out the spillway. And so they constructed these large fishing weirs, these large nets at the spillway that would allow the water to go through, but the fish to remain in the lake. Sounds good, except every time there would be a torrential rainstorm in the area, a great deal of debris would come down into the lake from the mountain streams. And what do you think happened? It clogged up against those fishing weirs, against those nets, and the result was that the water would rise to a dangerous level. Now, earthen dams are perfectly legitimate dams, provided that the water does not go over the top. If the water goes over the top, what happens? It erodes, and the dam is in danger of collapsing. Now, we've seen that sort of thing recently in New Orleans with the levees and so forth collapsing. So this was the danger. And every spring, they would get these torrential rainstorms. And every year, the word would be sent down by telegraph from the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club to the people of Johnstown that they ought to evacuate for fear that the dam might give way. And every year, the dam held. So this was May, May 31st, 1889. The Civil War had ended just 20 years or so before. It was Memorial Day. Everybody had come into Johnstown to celebrate Memorial Day, to honor the veterans. And a terrible rainstorm struck. It was torrential. 
It was like a monsoon. And before long, word came down from up above that the dam was in danger. The lake was filling with water. They desperately needed to get out, the people of Johnstown. But you know how it is. It's the boy who cries wolf. Nobody thought, I mean, after all, every year the same message was come down. People would be inconvenienced. They'd have to leave the area. And so they decided, the vast majority of them, to stay. And at about 2.30 in the afternoon, May 31st, 1889, the center portion of that dam gave way. And 22 million tons of water went cascading down that valley with the force of Niagara Falls. It wiped one community right down to bedrock. It struck Johnstown and it killed 2,209 men, women, and children. Hundreds more were never found again. Now that is a picture of the wrath of God. It's this idea of this settled opposition. God is opposed to sin. He is opposed to wickedness. He is opposed to injustice. And the warning keeps coming down the valley, as it were, down to us to repent, to return, to come back. Until eventually what happens? It breaks out. And that is what Paul is describing here in Romans chapter 1. That's the idea of God's wrath. It's not as though God all of a sudden, in an unpredictable manner, suddenly lashes out. It's the idea that there's been this settled opposition to sin. Now, as I said, we are oftentimes uncomfortable with this notion of the wrath of God. But what I want to suggest to you today is that the wrath of God is not the problem for us. Well, let's put it this way. It's not the primary problem for us. Obviously, it's a problem for us, but it's not the primary problem for us. The primary problem for us is not the wrath of God. The primary problem for us is the holiness of God. Because His wrath, His settled opposition to sin and unrighteousness is simply an extension of who God is. And if we're really pressed to the wall, I think most of us would have to admit that we want a holy God. And we want a holy God because unless there's a holy God, there is no justice in the universe. Of course, the problem with justice is that we want justice for everybody else, but not for us. Let them get what they deserve. Give me mercy. But let's be honest, when we live in a world in which there are villains like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Genghis Khan, don't you want to know that one day somebody is going to call them to account? Don't you want a universe in which one day God is going to set everything that is foul and unjust right? How many of you want a universe in which there's no justice in the end? We all want that, don't we? We long for that. When we see some terrible crime being perpetrated, when we see some young girl being raped, don't we want to know that one day that is going to be called to account? Well, see, that can't happen unless there is a holy God. And if there is a holy God, there is going to be a God 
of wrath. And so that is what Paul is talking about here. And that's why he says, we need the gospel. The Jews need the gospel. The Greeks need the gospel. We all need the gospel because the problem is this. We're not in a right relationship with God. We're actually in a hostile relationship with God. And when you are at war with a holy and righteous God and you are a sinful, unrighteous person, then the wrath of God is about to be poured out. And what is interesting is that Paul goes beyond that. He doesn't simply say that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness in the future. He speaks in the present tense. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In other words, Paul is saying it's already happening. It's already happening. Now you might say, well, I don't see the wrath of God today. Where is the wrath of God? I would suggest to you that there are a couple of places where you might see it supremely. First of all, you see it on the cross. Because that is what God did in Jesus Christ. He poured out His wrath on Jesus Christ. We say this as part of the comfortable words. He became the propitiation for our sins. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now when we say that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, that's a very interesting word that is used in the New Testament. What does it mean? It literally means to turn aside wrath. Propitiation. It literally means to turn aside wrath. Now let me give you an illustration of how God turns aside our wrath. This is an illustration from the New Testament. You don't have to turn there right now. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. You're probably familiar with it. Here is this woman. She's dragged before Jesus. And she's dragged before Jesus because the Pharisees really have no interest in her. But the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, want to entrap Jesus. And they see this woman as a pawn and an opportunity to do so. Because here is Jesus, he's been talking about grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. But on the other hand, Jesus is also out there saying that he's not come to destroy the law of Moses, but to what? Fulfill it. Now, as far as the Pharisees are concerned, you can't have it both ways. It's either one or the other. And so they bring this woman before Jesus. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, I've always wanted to know. Where were they that they should catch her in the act of adultery? But that's not the point. At any rate, they catch this woman in the act of adultery. There are a number of things that are interesting about the story. First of all, they don't bring the man. They only bring the woman. They bring her before Jesus and they throw her down in front of the Lord. And they said, the law of Moses states that this woman, having been caught in the act of adultery, deserves to die. Now, what do you say? Now, it's a tricky situation for Jesus. Because on the one hand, if he says, well, we have to have grace, mercy, and forgiveness, nobody's perfect, then they would have said, ah, you see, he's no friend of the law of Moses. The law is the law. On the other hand, if Jesus says, well, the 
law does say she has to be stoned. I, okay, have at it. Then they're going to say, oh, where's all this talk about grace, mercy, and forgiveness? So what is Jesus going to do? Well, he does something very interesting. We're told that he bent down and he wrote in the dust. And then he stood up and he said, you who have no sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Now, you know the story. It's familiar to you. But I want to suggest to you a slightly different interpretation than the one perhaps you have heard in the past. The text never really says what Jesus wrote. C.S. Lewis, incidentally, said that's one of the reasons why we know the story is legitimate. The gospel writer is simply recording what he saw. But Jesus obviously wrote something in the dirt. Now, what did he write? Over the years, evangelical scholars have said what he was writing was the sins of the people who were standing around. And when they saw their own sins being written there, and then he stands up and he says, you who have no sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. They all, having been shamed, dropped their stones and sneaked away. But actually, there is a biblical scholar. His name is Ken Bailey. He was um, a renowned New Testament scholar, just died a few years ago. I actually had the privilege of getting to know him and, and um, listening to him speak. He came to St. Helena's. But he was a renowned scholar, and he lived in the Middle East for many years. His parents were missionaries there, and he grew up there. And he said, I know exactly what Jesus wrote. And I think he's absolutely right. He said, knowing Jesus, knowing the context, and knowing the law of Moses, it's pretty obvious what Jesus probably wrote. Are you ready for this? He said, Jesus wrote, she shall be stoned. She shall be stoned. Now, here's what Ken Bailey said, and I think he's absolutely right. The situation took place, and context is always key. Never lift the passage out of its context. The location of this is significant. It took place, we're told, around the time of one of the great festivals, which meant there would have been a lot of people in Jerusalem at the time. The Roman government was not situated in Jerusalem. The Roman government and the governor's headquarters was at a place called Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea. It was up the coast. The governor only came to Jerusalem for these big festivals. And there was always a huge contingent of Roman soldiers in the city because they were always afraid that there would be an uprising. So this event takes place when there's a lot of tension in the air. All these people gathering, the Romans are there, the governor is in residence. It's a little bit like a powder keg. The incident takes place near the temple gate called Beautiful, which is the golden gate. It's the primary gate going into the city. If you come down from the Mount of Olives up through the Kidron Valley, it's the main entrance into the temple complex. And near there is a Roman fortress where the garrison was located. It was called the Antonia Fortress. Now, Ken Bailey says, picture the scene. Roman soldiers are up there on the parapet. It's their responsibility to keep the peace in Jerusalem. No uprisings. And incidentally, there had been an uprising every single year for the hundred years preceding Jesus' arrival on the scene. Every single year. So the Romans had a real problem. 
If you were suddenly uh, notified that you were the governor, there was good news and bad news. The good news, you're the governor. The bad news is you're the governor of Judea. Because this was the worst place to be the governor. Your job is to maintain the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. How do you do that with these troublesome Jews that are always wanting to throw off the yoke of Rome? So these Roman soldiers are up there on the parapet. They look down, they see a crowd gathering. That makes them nervous. They see this rabbi. They see this woman who's down in the dust before her and all these religious leaders standing around. And they're starting to get nervous. Now Ken Bailey says, we know that the law says she shall be stoned. That was their question. This woman's been caught in the act of adultery. The law says... So what do you say? And he said, Jesus probably wrote, she shall be stoned. And he said, we know that's what she wrote because of what he follows up with. The law did say, she shall be stoned. But here was the problem. The law also stated that whoever accused her had to cast the first stone. See, that's the key. That's the key. The law did say she had to be stoned, but the law also said if you accuse her, you have to cast the first stone. So now think about this. Jesus writes in the dust, she shall be stoned, and then he says, all right, you have no sin. Go ahead, cast the first stone. Because the law also says you have to cast the first stone. And those Jewish religious leaders are doing what? Well, they're, they're looking up at those Roman soldiers. And the Roman soldiers are looking at them. And they look back at the Roman soldiers. And the Roman soldiers look back at them. <laughs> and they look at the woman. And they look at the Roman soldiers. And then they look at the woman. And they look at Jesus. And they realize they've been had. And one by one, they drop their stones and they walk away. And Ken Bailey said what Jesus did was the one thing that is fatal in Middle Eastern culture. He shamed them. He shamed them publicly. And it's really interesting because if you read the Gospel of John, you see that that is a turning point in the narrative. Up to that point, all they wanted to do was discredit Jesus. From this point forward, what they want to do is kill him. He's got to go. And that's when Jesus turns to the woman and he says, where are your accusers? And she looks around and she said, Lord, there is no one. And Jesus said, that's right. Now go and leave your life of sin. And what Jesus did on that occasion, in that particular moment, was he stepped between the guilt of this woman because she was guilty. And the law did say she had to die. Because the wages of sin is death. But what happens is Jesus steps between that woman's guilt and the wrath of the Jewish religious leaders and he takes the punishment on himself. She's going to go free, but now on he's going to have to die. And folks, that is a picture of what God has done in Christ for us. 
So when Paul says the wrath of God is already being meted out, and we say, where? Where is the wrath of God being meted out? That's one place. It was meted out on the cross where Jesus Christ steps between our guilt, our sin, and God's holiness. And he takes the punishment on, our, on himself so that by his stripes we might be healed. So that's the first place where we see the wrath of God, even now, being meted out. Here's the second place where we see the wrath of God being meted out. Paul makes a reference to it. It's what he talks about later on in this chapter. Look at verse 24. We may not get to it today. It may be next week before we get to it. But here's what we find happening. Therefore, God gave them up. Apart from those words, depart from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. There are no more terrifying words that you could ever hear from God than the words, he gave them up. Because folks, there are only two ways to live. You can do it God's way and live God's way, or you can live your own way. And the worst words you'll ever hear from God are, okay, have it your way. That's what most of us want. I want to do it my way. And what Paul is saying is that there comes a point where God says, when we turn our back on him, when we are absolutely determined to do it our own way, where God gives us up, where he says, all right, have it your own way. Do it your own way. And when he gives us up, that language, incidentally, is the language of a prisoner exchange. God gives us up to the enemy is what Paul is saying. And when he does that, what happens? Well, it's what Paul describes in the rest of the chapter. It is this long, downhill spiral that leads to death and oblivion. So when you ask the question, where is the wrath of God being meted out? Those are two places where the wrath of God is being meted out even now. I mean, it's the idea that um, in war, in conflict, there are times when you give up your prisoners to the other side. Sometimes, it's not just prisoners, sometimes, for example, if an army is defeated on a battlefield, uh, imagine Napoleon being defeated on the battlefield and it is necessary to withdraw and you leave behind your wounded. To what? Well, we say the clemency of the enemy. But what we discover, think about the Japanese theater, the, uh, the Pacific theater during World War II, you weren't giving them up to anybody that was going to be compassionate for them. And that's the idea here, God giving them up. Not because he doesn't love them, but because he loves them enough that this is the path they have chosen, he's not going to force them. He's going to give them up to do their own thing. Well, they will have to get to that. But the problem with it is this. The answer is yes, there's always the hope of return. But what we're going to see is that when God gives them up, sometimes what happens is that it is this downhill spiral to the point where you wonder, will they ever come back? 
See, we're going to talk about this in two weeks when I preach, so just hang on. I'm going, to talk, I'm going to preach a sermon on the anger of Jesus, which is not a concept we generally think of, the anger of Jesus. But we're going to talk about the anger of Jesus. We're going to talk about what makes God angry, and what makes God angry is hardness of heart. And the question is, how do you get a hard heart? What, what, what makes a heart hardened? Because Jesus tells a story about this, a parable parable of the sower, in which he says sometimes the seed is thrown out, the seed being the gospel, and it lands on the hard path and it glances off. In other words, it doesn't even have a chance of getting in. The word, incidentally, that Jesus uses there for hard is the word scleros. It's the word from which we get the term scleroderma. It's a medical condition which is a hardening of the skin. It becomes impervious. See, that's the problem. Many people will say, well, I, I'm, I'm, I know I need to get serious about God. And, and eventually I will. But right now I'm young. I want to enjoy life. I want to have a good time. And then when I'm older and, I, and I've sort of gotten this out of my system, well, then I'll turn to God. Well, that sounds right. That sounds like a reasonable response, except for a couple of things. Number one, None of us knows the future. So you're assuming you're going to live to a ripe old age and have the opportunity. And the second thing is this. What in the world are you going to be doing between now and then that is going to make your heart ripe or conducive to receiving the gospel? I'm going to tell you what you're going to be doing between now and then. You're going to be sinning. And the problem with that is the sin will harden your heart. It will not make you more receptive. That's why the Bible says today, now, is the acceptable day of salvation. So is there the possibility? Of course there is. But the problem is, once you start on that downhill spiral, the heart begins to harden. And that's why what Paul describes here, and he's going to describe what that looks like, this downhill spiral. That's why what he describes is so terrifying. So utterly terrifying. So that's what Paul is describing here. He says the wrath of God is already being revealed because people have turned their backs on God. Now he says the wrath of God is being poured out because they've turned their backs on God and they've turned their backs on God because they have suppressed the truth. That's how he describes it here. They suppress the truth. Look again at verse 18 and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Paul says the wrath of God, which has been building for some time, is breaking out because men have suppressed the truth about God. It's not a case of being ignorant about God. God understands ignorance. He understands our frailty. What causes the wrath of God to be poured out is the suppression of the truth. It's not an ignorance of the truth. It's not as though people are unaware of God. 
Paul is attacking atheism here, not agnosticism. There are many people that have lots of questions. There are lots of people that are confused out there. There are lots of people that are searching. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He says the wrath of God is revealed against men who suppress the truth. They know the truth. Why? Because God has made the truth known. Now, what Paul is talking about here is what theologians commonly refer to as general revelation. The word revelation means, of course, to reveal. The only way that you and I can know God, because God is transcendent, holy other, because He is infinite, we are finite, because we are creatures and He is not, He's the Creator. The only way, therefore, that you and I can know God is if God makes Himself known to us. There's no way that we, in and of our own power or wisdom or whatever it may be, can divine who God is. God has to make Himself known to us. And the Bible says that God does that in two ways. He reveals Himself in two ways. One way is general revelation, which is Paul talking about here, and the other way is special revelation. Now, general revelation is just what it sounds like. It's a general form of revealing. It's sometimes referred to by theologians as natural revelation. It's God making himself known in the things that have been made. It's the old watchmaker argument that William Paley made back in the 18th century. If you're walking along the beach and you look down and you see a wristwatch lying there in the sand and you pick it up and you pop the back off of it, you know by instinct, don't you, that this did not happen randomly by chance or by accident. You know by experience that this is something that is designed, that it has purpose, that it operates because there was a watchmaker. Paul is saying the same thing is true about the created order. Nobody, he says, can take a look at the universe around us and think that all of this happened by random chance or by accident. You simply can't believe that. He says God has made his existence known. It is plain because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. That's called general revelation. And we're going to come back to it in a minute. Now, the other type of revelation is what we call special revelation. Paul says general revelation is not enough to save us. General revelation, looking at the world in all of its complexity, you can come to the realization that there is a God, what philosophers call the supreme being. But general revelation in nature, in creation, cannot tell you what kind of God exists. For example, the same God who paints that beautiful sky over the Ashley River at sunset is also the God who allows tsunamis and earthquakes and natural disasters. So while the created order can tell us that a God exists, it can't tell us what kind of a God he is. You get mixed messages in nature, don't you? Nature, red and tooth and claw. The only way you can understand 
who God really is, is if there is a special kind of revelation beyond the natural order. And it's that special revelation that Paul is going to go on to flesh out here in the book. But at the beginning, he says, the wrath of God, God's opposition to evil and wickedness is being poured out even at the present time, not because men are ignorant of the truth, but because they suppress the truth. There is enough there that if they take it to heart, that if they have an open mind, there is enough there to cause them to search for God. Now let me show you a passage in the book of Acts, which immediately precedes the book of Romans. So if you will, go to the book of Acts for just a moment. Acts chapter 17. And let me show you. This is Paul himself in action. Let me give you a perfect example of what Paul is talking about when he talks about general revelation, God making himself known in the created order. It's not enough to tell us what God is like, but it is enough to get us searching for God. So Acts chapter 17 describes Paul in Athens. Now, Paul is in Athens. Athens was one of the great cities of the ancient world. Even in that day, which was the late afternoon of Athens' glory, it was still a city that was the intellectual center of the ancient world. But we're told that when Paul went there, he was provoked in his spirit. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is his traveling companions at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was filled with idols. So the people were worshiping people, but they worshiped idols. And Paul was provoked because, look, this was supposed to be an intellectual center. These were supposed to be wise people, but they'd become foolish. I wonder if when he wrote Romans, he wasn't thinking about these people. But at any rate, Paul gets an opportunity to address one of the great societies there in Athens, and that portion of the narrative picks up in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You know, many people say, I'm a religious person. Well, these were religious people. But in the words of Shania Twain, it don't impress me much. That's what Paul would have said. He said, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found even an altar dedicated to the unknown God. I mean, you understand that the Greeks and the Romans worshipped all kinds of deities. They had hundreds of them. There was a god of the doorpost, of the hinges, of the compost pile. There was a god for everything. And these people in Athens had erected a monument to the unknown god for fear that perhaps they had overlooked one. They didn't want to make him angry. And so Paul says, I know you're religious. He said, because I've even seen a monument to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown. Now listen to Paul's argument here. I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by men. Paul's saying, think through this for a minute. You really believe that the God who fashioned the universe the stars, the planets, the galaxies, the atoms, all of those things. Do you think that actually he lives in a temple formed by human hands? An image of wood, metal, stone? 
No, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. I love that expression, that they might feel their way toward him. Remember the story of the Cyclops from Greek mythology? He was blinded. And what was he doing? Groping around, trying to find those who had hurt him. That's the image here that we have. It's it's the idea that that God has given us enough in creation that we can at least grope around and search for him. And he says we should search for him. Yet he goes on to say he is actually not far from us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Here comes the coup de grace. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It's very interesting the way Paul puts it. He doesn't say he invites people to repent. He what? commands them. Why does he command them? Because the times of ignorance are over. God has made himself known in the things that have been made. And if you at least take a look at the created order, you come to the realization there is a creator, there is a supreme being. And Paul's point is, if you come to that conclusion, you can at least grope around, you can at least begin to search for him. And if you search for him, you'll find him. Jesus himself said the same thing. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. So going back to Romans now, when Paul says, people say, I can't believe there's a God, he said, it's not because they're ignorant, it's because they are willfully suppressing the truth, and that results in the wrath of God. That results in the wrath of God. And that's why, going back to Romans, Paul says, they are without excuse. They may not know what God is like, but they have to know that there is a God. And if there is a God, it only stands to reason he's the most important subject in the universe. And if he's the most important subject in the universe, it only stands to reason that we should seek him out. And if we do, we'll find him. And if we don't, it's because we're suppressing the truth. And that's why he says they're without excuse. Now, we live in a scientific age. And many people will come up with all kinds of excuses as to why they don't want to believe in God or seek God or serve God. Well, what is interesting is that here we are at the dawn of the 21st century, and science is no longer an excuse for not believing in God. There is more compelling evidence from the scientific world. You know, some Christians think that science is the great enemy. Science is not the great enemy. God is the God of truth. All truth of God is God's truth. 
And there is more evidence in recent years, over the course of the past 50 years, as a matter of fact, coming out of science to prove the existence of God than at any other point, and really, in a more compelling way than from any other discipline. Let me just give you two examples of what I mean when it comes to scientific evidence for the existence of God. The first is what we would call Big Bang cosmology. For centuries, people all over the globe believed that the universe was eternal. The Greeks believed that the universe was eternal. Now, they believed that history was cyclical, that what happens is that the world eventually winds down and, and dies, but then it just has a rebirth. Uh, the, the Greek word that they use there is palagenesia. There's a palagenesia. There's this, this, this rebirth of the universe. And in the 20th century, the early part of the 20th century, many scientists believed in this. They referred to it not as a palagenesia. They referred to it as the steady state theory, that the universe is in a steady state. The universe is as it has always been. Uh, Carl Sagan, how many of you remember the old series that Carl Sagan used to do called The Cosmos? It used to be on television. He would always end that show with almost a benediction, almost a religious tone to it. He said, the universe. You've got this spiral galaxy behind him there. The universe, it always was, is, and forever will be. That sounds like a doxology, doesn't it? The God who was and is and evermore. But that was the idea. The universe is, is, is constant. It's always been there and it always will be. And that's what most people thought until the 1920s, when one of the world's most respected astronomers and physicists, Edwin Hubble, you've heard of the famous Hubble telescope, Edwin Hubble discovered what was known as redshift, or the Doppler effect. It is the idea that he noticed that there was light coming from distant galaxies, from distant stars, but it was coming to us on a weaker wavelength. And as time went by, that wavelength became weaker and weaker, which implied to him that the universe was not static, but that the universe and the galaxies were in a state of movement. And what's more, these galaxies, every single one of them, was moving away from a fixed point in the distant past. And it dawned on him what that meant. It meant that there was a time when the universe had a beginning. And it was such an explosive beginning that ever since that time, the universe has been in a constant state of expansion. Now, many scientists were resistant to that. In fact, they derisively referred to it as the Big Bang, Hubble's Big Bang. And one of the reasons they were resistant to it was because it sounded very religious. In the beginning, God said, and it sounded very religious. And so many scientists, including Albert Einstein, resisted the notion of the universe having a beginning. But even Einstein, having looked through Hubble's telescope, came to the conclusion that he was right. We now know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that the universe at one point did not exist. And then all of a sudden it did. Time and space suddenly, at one point in the distant past, came into existence. And if that sounds remarkably like Genesis, 
That's because it's intended to. So you have the Big Bang cosmology. Here's something else. It's commonly referred to as the anthropic principle, sometimes referred to by scientists as the fine-tuning of the universe. What it basically means is that all of the physical properties in the universe are finely balanced. And when I say finely balanced, I'm talking like one to the thousandth power. But every one of the properties in the universe is finely tuned for life. And, and not just for life. <laughs> I'm not just talking about single-celled organisms, amoebas, mindless life. I'm talking about sentient complex life. All of the properties in the universe are finely tuned, that if they were off by even a fraction of a margin, it's not that different life would exist, no life would exist. The universe would be a vast desert. Here's the way Paul Davies, who was a professor at the University of Cambridge, renowned astrophysicist, now professor, distinguished professor at Arizona State University put it. He said, scientists are slowly waking up to an inconvenient truth. The universe looks suspiciously like a fix. The issue concerns the very laws of nature themselves. For 40 years, physicists and cosmologists have been quietly collecting examples of all too convenient coincidences and special features in the underlying laws of the universe that seem to be necessary in order for life and hence conscious beings to exist. Change any one of them and the consequences would be lethal. Fred Hoyle, the distinguished cosmologist once said, it was as if a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. To see the problem, imagine playing God with the cosmos. Before you is a designer machine that lets you tinker with the basics of physics. Twiddle this knob and you make all electrons a bit lighter. Twiddle that one and you make gravity a bit stronger and so on. It happens that you need to set 30-something knobs to fully describe the world about us. The crucial point is that some of those metaphorical knobs must be tuned very precisely or the universe would be sterile. Example, neutrons are just a tad heavier than protons. If it were the other way around, atoms couldn't exist because all the protons in the universe would have decayed into neutrons shortly after the Big Bang. No, proton, no protons, then no atomic nucleuses, and no atoms, no atoms, no chemistry, no life. Like baby bear's porridge in the story of Goldilocks, the universe seems to be just right for life. Now, what do you do with all of that evidence? Well, you can either accept it and seek after God, who's made himself known in the things that have been made, or you can willfully suppress the truth. All of that aside, all of the evidence that I see in my eyes, I still refuse to believe it. And there are people who do it. The world's most famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, is a perfect example. I love the way that he describes biology. 
Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. That's an interesting definition, isn't it? Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Translate, but we know they weren't. Why? Because that would introduce a creator, and that's a no-fly zone. We're not going there. Now you ask yourself, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it probably is what? Not according to Richard Dawkins. That's what you call suppressing the truth. And Paul says it is without excuse because God has made himself known in the things that have been made. And if we earnestly seek him, the promise is that we will ever surely find him. Let's pray. Father, you have made yourself known in the things that have been made in the created order. Your signature is written across everything that we see. We know in our hearts, in our heart of hearts, we know this from our experience, that none of this happened by chance or by accident. We are not very, very lucky. Grant us the grace to set aside whatever preconceived notions we have, whatever hardness of heart we may have, and having made yourself known, grant us the grace to seek after you and find you. That we may know the joy of your salvation. That we may know a right relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. That your wrath might be turned away from us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, when we come back, God willing, we are going to talk about... What happens when we don't repent, when we continue to suppress the truth, we'll talk about that downhill spiral. What happens? And the question is this. It's the old limbo question. How low can you go? Thanks very much.